Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, those who are carrying the weight of the world, the burden of grief or guilt or shame or sorrow. Whew, wondering if that's you this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You feel like you're carrying the weight of the world today? I've got uh, a couple of friends whose burden of grief um, has lifted them to the top of uh, my my prayer concerns, and I'm wondering if um, you are like that as well. God wakes you up in the middle of the night with someone on your heart, um, and you just know, I, I just I need to get up and pray for them. I know that the grief or the guilt or the shame or the sorrow in their life is um, is leading them to hide in the dark. And maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you just want to roll back over and hide in the dark folds of the blankets or shut everybody else out. But I want you to know you're not alone. You're not alone in your suffering. Um, it's not going to hurt less if you don't get up. Jesus says, come to me. Jesus says, I've come to be with you. I've come to lighten your load and enlighten your life. I've come to shine in the deepest darkness and give you real substantial hope, not just for eternity. I mean, yes, for eternity, but also for the right here and the right now. Don't you want that? I do. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God sees you right now where you are in this very moment in your suffering? God's heart goes out to you right now. By the power of his Holy Spirit, God enters the darkness and the pain and the suffering, and he extends his everlasting arms wide enough to embrace you and to absorb all the darkness um, encircling you. I mean, how do I know that? Because it's literally not dark to him. The darkness is literally not dark to God. It all becomes light when we let him in. Yes, yes, uh, it reveals everything, and that's what we're afraid of, like, right, that piercing, penetrating light that shines into the dark places that we would, we think we would prefer to keep uh, closed off and shuttered away. But in, in the revealing, God's also present, and, and you receive his peace, which passes all understanding, and genuine relief, and a, a new breath, like you can actually breathe deeply, like a, a a breath, the breath of life and the light and the hope of the gospel and real substantial love. Don't be afraid to let God in today. His perfect love casts out fear and he is good. I would send you to the opening verses of Matthew chapter four. You can read about Jesus's time in the wilderness 
a time of real suffering, of real hunger, of real confrontation with the devil. And, and after that, um, we read that Jesus enters into his public ministry. And that's where the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, is actually uh, comes in the context of that conversation. This verse, these verses specifically fulfilled by Jesus, that the people walking in darkness would see a great light, that those dwelling in the shadow of death, in deepest darkness, that on them light would dawn. That is who Jesus is. That is the Christ who has come. Let the light of Christ dawn in your life. Won't you let him in? This is Mornings with Carmen. If everybody had an ocean across the USA, then everybody be serving like California. If you were surfing today where I live and most likely where you live, you'd be surfing on snowbanks. Steve West joins us. He is the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. Steve, good morning. Is it cold and snowy where you are? Oh, no, Carmen. It's not not cold and snowy. We have had some snow, but it didn't stick in my area of the country. Really? Okay. Well, um, I'm in Middle Tennessee this morning, and um, we have like a little over six inches. And this morning, I will say it took me a whole lot longer to get ready um, because it, in addition, I had to put on like actual boots and, 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 you know, a coat and gloves and a scarf oh, and a yeah. hat. And all of that takes so much more time than your, um, you know, than your robe and cozy slippers. It sure does. It sure does. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Hey, um, let's lead off with what's going to happen today at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, what case are they hearing and what do you expect uh, the outcome to be? Oh, this is absolutely a, uh, a fine way to kick off the new year with a with a new with a couple of cases that are before the court. Actually, four cases. The court has accepted two uh, cases that involve the um, vaccine mandate passed by the uh, or enacted by the Occupational Hazard and Safety Administration, or OSHA, as most people know. And the other one is a mandate that affects most healthcare workers in the country. These are vaccine mandates issued by the Biden administration back in November, and they're coming into effect, one of them, on Monday of this week. So the OSHA mandate impacts probably two-thirds of private employers and private employees uh, within the country requiring a vaccine or requiring these employers to have their workers test get tested weekly if they don't take the vaccine. And then the other one applies to healthcare workers that are at any kind of healthcare facility that's um, funded uh, or gets funds from Medicaid or Medicare, which is most of them. And so that's not just hospitals, that's nursing homes, that's uh, any kind of any kind of healthcare facility. And, you know, many of these healthcare facilities uh, often are run by uh, faith-based uh, uh, outfits so or institutions. And so, you know, it, it does impact religious liberties in a way as well. So the court's going to hear uh, two cases that involve each of these mandates today at 10 o'clock and probably issue a fairly quick ruling because they took these cases on a very expedited basis and agreed to hear oral arguments. And that's something that is very, very rarely done. Uh, so it's, it's, it'd be interesting to hear what happens this morning and then more interesting to hear how they rule within the next uh, couple of days, possibly as soon as Monday. All right. Now, forgive me if I missed this, but in this mix, is there a conversation about these members of the U.S. military who 
um, you know, have have been have been asking for or seeking religious exemptions to the vaccine mandate. To this point, those have been denied. Um, but I, I know there's a pending case related to that. Did I did I miss a conversation about that? No, not in this. These these particular mandates deal with private businesses and also healthcare facilities. So there's okay. another mandate that deals with federal employees and then military service members as well. And it's, there's another one that deals with federal contractors. These are all federal mandates, but those aren't at issue today in these particular cases. Okay. You know, they are really they are really important cases because you know uh, the, for consumers, you know uh, that. Um, for example, yesterday I talked with Brandon Trosclair, who's a independent grocer in Louisiana, and he just told me about how if this OSHA mandate goes into effect, he's going to lose employees uh, and prices will rise as wages rise by virtue of having to compete for a smaller number of employees. So that obviously filters down to the consumers who come in. Uh, he's already you know, got a shortage of employees. He's also faced uh, supply chain issues. And so when you don't find something on the shelf, or you come in and there's not enough people to check you out, uh, you know that's going to impact the consumers that are out there. So they do have they do have implications, and they have implications, uh, religious liberty implications as well, since you've got these faith based uh, organizations that are running hospitals, or you know they uh, there are Christian seminaries, uh, colleges that are impacted by this as well. They're just not in these particular cases that are before the court, but they're going to be impacted by whatever happens today. All right. So now you have me wondering um, about other faith-based um, organizations across the country and other challenges that they're facing. Um, can I ask you, and we'll um, we'll do this in just a moment, can I ask you about what is going on in Alaska? Um, I remember the conversation that we had about the women's shelter and um, the city forcing them to house men who identify as women and all of the challenges that they're facing. Um, can we um, Can we talk about that next? We sure can. Fantastic. All right, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Steve West and I will be right back. Dashing through the snow with the cold wind in our face. I can't hold a horse. He thinks he's in a race. (laughs) Steve West is a legal correspondent for World. Uh, He served as a federal prosecutor for 34 years. He's an attorney in private practice. He joins us to talk about um, challenges that we face in terms of liberty here in uh, in the United States of America and sometimes around the world. Um, And he writes something called the uh, the Liberties Roundup, which you can find at World, um, which is at WNG.org. So that's World News Group. Uh, dot org, um, Steve. The women who have already suffered um, uh, abuse, um, violence, seek shelter from um, an organization in Alaska uh, called the Hope Center, uh, and the government was saying that the Hope Center needed to provide uh, beds next to those women for men who identify as women and want to um, have shelter there as well. What has the court said about that? Well, it was just before Christmas, uh, a good ruling from the court there. Uh, The court determined that downtown Hope Center, which houses these women, was not a place of a public accommodation. So they didn't have to, uh, they weren't subject to the Anchorage non-discrimination ordinance. You know, Alaska is a far, far away from most of a, most of the listeners that you have, but the, 
what's happening there is happening all across the country because there are these public accommodation ordinances passed by cities and counties, and there's some by states that require you know businesses to open up their premises to essentially everybody and not discriminate on any reason, and particularly on sexual orientation and uh, gender identity, which is the new thing that's come about. And so in, in Anchorage, um, the city council took the position there that they had to be open to um, men who identified as women. And this is really difficult in a faith-based shelter like this with women who have suffered sexual abuse. Uh, it's, it's crowded. Uh, the beds are three feet away from each other. And just the idea of a man uh, sleeping in a bed three feet away from a woman who has already suffered uh, sexual abuse uh, is just nonsensical. So the court uh, just ruled that it wasn't a public accommodation, didn't have to comply with this non-discrimination ordinance because it has a lot of uh, different criteria for who it admits. It just doesn't admit anybody. So that was a good outcome of this particular lawsuit. And it was actually the second lawsuit that involved Down Hope, Downtown Hope Center in the last three years. Steve, I know there's a lot of um, a lot of parents listening right now. Uh, our children's education is really, really important to all of us. We want them to learn history. Um, we want them to learn it truthfully. Um, we're not trying to shelter them from the realities of our past, but we also don't want them um, taught through a lens that uh, that is that says everything is about power and the color of your skin. Like so, critical race theory is at issue across the country. And there's a lot of places where people are saying, hey, you know, we don't actually have a critical race theory curriculum, but they're teaching everything through the lens of critical race theory. Can you tell us what's going on in one Virginia county? Well, that's right. I mean, we hear this word so often, critical race theory or CRT. uh, And oftentimes it doesn't go by that name when you see it turn up in the public schools, but it basically views everyone and everything through the lens of race. And then uh, it are, uh, people argue that this fosters racial division, racial stereotyping, and racial hostility because it encourages white students to view themselves as consider their white privilege and that status uh, as oppressors. And it teaches black students to identify themselves as victims of white privilege and white supremacy. So in Albemarle County, which is where the University of Virginia is, Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, the public school system there is is pushing a curriculum that basically builds around these particular ideas. And so Alliance Defending Freedom has brought a uh, complaint, uh, a lawsuit on behalf of several parents and students pointing to uh, this. This is a form of racism on the part of the court by segregating and dividing kids by race. And, you know, it kind of turns upside down what we've tried to teach for years in terms of battling any kind of uh, racism in the schools, which is everybody should be treated the same, that we should view everybody uh, through not through the lens of race, but as individuals, as people of dignity. And here students are being divided over the uh, over the idea of race. It's not the first lawsuit to confront this. There's others going on in the country, particularly there's some teachers that are challenging this in Missouri and Illinois, uh, and there's others as well. But you know, oftentimes you'll hear this referred to as an anti-racist uh, curriculum, but it couldn't be farther from that, really. Yeah, I think we're always needful to remind ourselves uh, and each other uh, in that God created each of us and all of us in his image. 
um, that at creation, at the cross, in the kingdom, um, there we stand, red and yellow, black and white, uh, every single one precious in God's sight, every single one created equally in God's image, equally um, sinful, equally in need of salvation, equally in need of Jesus, uh, and in the kingdom, equal, equal as brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the living God, co-heirs with Christ. And so when we have these conversations, I want us to be you know, thinking about um, how people are perceived in the world and the worldview behind that. Because if you operate out of a Darwinian worldview, uh, then there's nothing wrong with racism at all. And if you operate out of a Christian worldview, out of a biblical worldview, there's everything wrong with racism. And so let's be people who bring forward um, the genuine worldview of God in this conversation. Let's be the people who say, you know, people have uh, eternal and inherent value because they are image bearers of the living God. Um, and, And that's the basis out of which we talk about the equality of people, that we are equal before uh, before God. Steve, um, uh, we have time to talk about one more um, one more story, I think. Let's um, let's bring people's attention to this professor at the University of California, Irvine. Um, What's what's going on? And um, and again, this sort of circles back to the conversation about vaccines. Well, it does. And, and here, this is a, um, a medical ethics director at the University of California, Irvine. His name is Aaron Carity. And he, right before Christmas, was fired from his position there at the university over uh, his contention that he didn't need to receive the vaccine that, that they mandated for all the employees and students at the university because he had a natural immunity. He had contracted COVID back early on in the pandemic. And he said that his immunity was just as good as the uh, the immunity you obtained from getting the vaccine, or he said perhaps even better than that. And so he didn't need it. And so he made a challenge to it uh, in a lawsuit uh, based on equal protection, uh, you know, asking the school to justify why it should treat him differently than somebody who has immunity from the vaccination. He lost that in the district court, and that's on appeal. But when he did that, the school put him on unpaid leave initially and then uh, for a period of time and then it put him on uh, an indefinite leave and then it finally just fired him uh, from from the school so there's a big controversy now as to you know whether or not um, natural immunity is as good as vaccine immunity and it's just unclear there's not enough evidence about that Um, some schools have been accommodating to folks who claim natural immunity and other employers some have not they have not in his case Obviously, he wants to follow his convictions. He's a Catholic believer. Uh, he says that, uh, you know, that he that this would be taking the vaccine. He feels like would be wrong for him uh, because of its connection to fetal cell lines in terms of research. And so he's trying to honor that conviction. Steve, um, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to highlight one more a conversation. This one actually taking place just north of the U.S.-Canadian border. So today is the day that Canada's uh, new law goes into effect banning so-called conversion therapy. Even the New York Times in its headline puts those words conversion therapy in scare quotes. Here's why. There's no such thing. Um, And so just know that when you are reading coverage and talking about Uh, The threat to, in particular, religious liberty for people living in Canada. This is um, going to have um, an effect 
on whether or not you can actually publicly read the portions of Scripture that um, that condemn uh, any sort of sexual behavior outside of the context of monogamous marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Um, so if you read the passages of Scripture aloud that condemn homosexual behavior, you may well uh, find yourself on the wrong side of Canada's new ban on so-called conversion therapy. It is a law which took effect today nationwide. There are now a dozen countries around the world um, that have banned what uh, you will hear described as a discredited, widely discredited practice. Um, here's the reality. Ministries that engage in, in, in therapy um, with people who have unwanted same-sex attraction or unwanted um, feelings related to sexuality um, or gender identity, uh, those ministries are going to find themselves absolutely in the crosshairs of these kinds of laws. Um, and so those of us who broadcast <clears throat> across the northern border um, are also trying to figure out what we can and cannot say in this new environment. So prayers appreciated. Steve West, as always, thank you so much for the Liberties Roundup and what you do every single day. You guys can get the Liberties Roundup and a ton of other great resources from World News Group, WNG.org. We'll be right back. think about when you um, when you consider to whom you belong your family like uh, a lot of us have spent time with our families um, over the holidays there are a number of people who've not been able to spend time with their families praying this morning for um, for a friend uh, who on the text line texted in this morning, um, please pray for losses and our mother's health. It's uh, There are forces keeping us apart and keeping her from coming back home. I'm wondering if you are feeling the ways in which the world not only pulls us apart generationally, but keeps us apart generationally. Thinking about a mom named Lori, whose uh, daughter is an addict living on the streets in um in San Francisco, addicted to fentanyl, um, you know that. Then Lori went and tried for three months to get her daughter to um, get help and or come home. And you know those efforts were rejected, and eventually she had to leave. I just, I'm just, I'm feeling that division deeply uh, this morning. Dan Dewitt uh, is going to talk with us about our orphan hearts. We're going to reflect together on John chapter 14 as we bring the Word of God to bear on the realities of our day. Imagine this thought running through your teen's brain. If mom and dad do everything for me, I don't have to do anything. Scary, isn't it? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Parents naturally want to provide good things for their child. But if they never help them learn to become mature and independent, they'll become lazy and bored. And worse than that, they'll remain in a selfish state of dependence on their parents. So ask yourself a question. Are you doing everything for your teen? Are you still getting them out of bed in the morning? Do you clean their bathroom or do their laundry? Do you help too much on their homework? Remember that the only way a child develops the character trait of responsibility is by having someone give it to them. Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. 
That's parentingtodaysteens.org. Dan DeWitt uh, joins us frequently. Um, he serves at Cedarville University. He also hosts a website called Theolatte.com. That's like theology and coffee, Theolatte.com. Uh, he posts something called the Weekend Worldview Reader. And because it's Friday, it's a really good time to be thinking about what you're going to be reading over the weekend. The Weekend Worldview Reader provides some fodder for thought. Um, so, Dan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It is great to be back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So um, I want to talk about John chapter 14 and um, the questions that are asked there, the people who are asking the questions there, um, and the way that Jesus really does come to answer our deepest, deepest need and longing for a person and a place. Yeah, the, so I wrote a reflection on John 14, and for full disclosure, um, I've been reading John 14 multiple times a day um, in the morning um, in preparation for speaking on this passage here in a couple weeks at Cedarville University. And so we have chapel every single day, and it's just electric um, to be joined, you know, to join 3,500 college students in worship um, every single day. And then we have about a 30-minute really tight spot where someone will share a message. And I say a tight spot because students have to scatter across campus to get to classes. And so um, when I have the opportunity to preach in chapel, I usually spend a lot of time just reflecting on the passage and then asking, how can I really make sure that this is you know, on target, <clears throat> on point, and in time? Because if you don't finish on time, they're going to leave. They've got class. <laughs> so um, this reflection and reading it over and over again, one verse from John 14 that stood out to me is Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. And um, in the broader context of the chapter, Jesus is responding to three different disciples, three different kind of questions. I think all of them are touching on that that point that we feel like orphans often in the world. And Jesus doesn't, you know, say you're not orphans and we know we're not, but he reassures us that I'm not going to leave you. It's going to feel at times like you're an orphan, someone without a place, someone without a person. And the whole idea of an orphan and that, that word picture here is someone who desperately needs help from outside themselves. And so I think John 14 is speaking to this restlessness in our hearts, this longing to um, have security and settledness and this longing to have complete acceptance and belonging. And what we find in John 14 is that these longings converge in Jesus. And so um, I, I hope that that's an encouragement to people who might be listening today, that one, the reality of feeling orphaned um, is a reality Jesus spoke to, but he promised he wouldn't leave us this way. So that, that means there's going to be this in-between time where it feels hopeless at times, and we have to constantly reassure us, Jesus said that he would come back for us, that we might be with him. So that's the kind of hope that gets us through. It's not the kind of um, remedy that just makes everything easy. One of the things that I like that you point out, and again, um, we are talking with Dan DeWitt. Uh, we're talking about a post at Theolatte.com. Uh, it is Our Orphan Hearts a reflection on John 14. I'm not sure I'd ever 
um, just just paused to consider, Dan, that uh, there's there are three disciples asking three questions, and those three questions are really really big questions. Thomas asks, mm-hmm. "How can we know the way?" Philip asks, "What is God like?" And Judas, uh, not Iscariot, asks, "How can we know God?" Um, those are those are really big questions. Um, I mm-hmm. I so appreciate the questions that people ask Jesus and the way that he answers them, particularly when they're asking from a genuine heart of uh, of desiring to know. I mean, you know, there's other places where Jesus answers their questions because he knows that they're not really asking them or they're trying to trap him or trick him. But these are genuine questions that people ask. Absolutely. I mean, these are, you know, people don't always word them that way, right? Um, we, we word them in all kinds of different ways. But underneath our questions of, is there meaning? Is there purpose? How can I understand how to make decisions in life? What happens after I die? You know, looking up at the night sky thinking, is this all there is? These are all questions that get at what these disciples are asking. And yeah, I think my favorite out of the three of them is Thomas, who, you know, is kind of known for being a doubter. And um, Jesus tells them, look, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's why I bring out in this post that this touches on a fundamental need for place. Um, but Jesus says, and you know the way, like very kind of, you know, it almost seems kind of like trivial. You, you know the way. And Thomas says, um, I don't know the way. And to which Jesus, of course, responds beautifully, I am the way. And I think that that's the kind of reality we have to remind ourselves all the time of when it feels like there is no way and we can't see a way to remind ourselves that because we know Jesus, um, we have answers to these really big questions. And Jesus in this passage says that there are many rooms in the Father's house, um, which I think is less focused on the um, quantity of rooms in heaven. I think the real focus is that because of Jesus— there's room for us in God's presence. That doesn't make life easy here, but man, this passage sure warms my heart um, that we are clinging to this reality that Jesus has made room for us in the Father's presence, and we know the way because we know Him. Yeah, there's the promise of the Holy Spirit in this passage, which I um, which I love as well. You also um, you also highlight the important conversation about about this being seemingly so narrow. Um, it's not It's not Carmen and Dan who say Jesus mm-hmm. is the only way to salvation uh, or the only way to the Father, that no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. It's Jesus who says that. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that we bring this up today. Yesterday I lunched with my pastor, and he shared a story with me where he had the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus and about how he can know forgiveness and meaning— and it was a young man um, in England when he was in, spending time in, in London, um, and my pastor shared that with him, and the young man said to him, so you're telling me Jesus is the only way I could really connect with God and forgiveness? And he said that he's forever regretted his answer to that young man, um, because he said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. And he said that within a couple hours of walking away from that young man, he was convicted and has never forgotten about the fact that the right answer to that question is not, yes, I'm telling you that. The right answer to that is, this is what Jesus said. You could discount me. You could forget me entirely. Jesus made this claim. 
And sometimes we hear that and we focus just on the exclusive nature of that, and it is indeed narrow and exclusive. But you have to realize every claim about what's really real at, at some point is going to become very narrow as well. And so I talk about kind of the different options there in this post, whether you say that there is no truth or that all roads lead to heaven, all of those are exclusive claims. So the question isn't what view um, is the least narrow, how can I be the most inclusive, but rather what is actually true. And if Jesus really died and rose again and ascended into heaven where he's preparing a place for us, if that's true, then it's not narrow, it's this loving, powerful reality. Not that there's just one way, but rather there's a way. <laughs> mm. There is a way. There is a way. There is a way when there seems to be no way. Uh, maybe this morning what you are thinking about is how am I going to be um, honest to God and be a faithful Christian um, and keep my commitment to Christ in the midst of a relationship or relationships or a family or a workplace where um, people don't share my Christian worldview, my Christian commitments. G.K. Chesterton has an admirable way of building lasting and respectful relationships with people who didn't share his uh, Christian commitments. And Dan has a post on that, Can We Talk?, Talking about giving the soft answer. More uh, from Theolatte.com in just a moment. Continuing our conversation with Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. He posts at Theolatte.com. That's where you can find the weekend worldview reader that we are reading from today. This piece is called Can We Talk? Uh, the soft answer, and it refers to the way G.K. Chesterton um, built lasting and respectful relationships with people who didn't share his Christian commitments. Talk with us um, a little bit about this, Dan. Well, so Chesterton's one of my favorite authors. I mean, I just—he he really frustrates me because everything he writes, he kind of takes the, the long way around. I think Time Magazine— um, there was an article during his lifetime that said Chesterton will usually make his point using popular sayings, proverbs, and allegories, first carefully turning them inside out. And um, Chesterton was just great at that, taking kind of a conventional idea that's wrong and showing it's wrong by turning it inside out. However, Chesterton, though he would work really hard to defend an idea, he really never defended himself. And though he would try and justify an argument, he would never try and justify himself. And so I wrote a post just to say, look at this, this man that God used in a tremendous way to have friendships with people like George Bernard Shaw, a well-known atheist, H.G. Wells, um, a well-known skeptic, and others. And he was able to, as his biographer Massey Ward says, he was able to um, excel in the soft answer. And so this post highlights that, and what I hope to do, I, I include some really interesting quotations from people who really were kind of sparring partners intellectually with Chesterton, but at the end of the day would say, you know, he was a good man. He was a really good man. Um, and then I want to talk um, briefly here about uh, between a hamster and a hard place, <laughs> and not just because that is a great, great um, title for a piece of just about anything, but because your hamster needed a home. <laughs> well, and Carmen, my, my, 
that hamster is headed south and it's headed to ten- Nashville, Tennessee. Oh. So, um, so it's I, not I, coming to my house. It is not. <laughs> it's not coming to my. It's not welcome here. Well, we have it's, no, it's we not. have we have done our round with rats, and we're not doing that. Um, you know, one of one of the in the program earlier, there was a uh, little sermon excerpt from Greg Laurie, and he was talking about his son getting a rat. And so, for people who've been listening, you know, this morning, they'll they'll know that this is kind of on on theme. Um, my, both of our youngest kids, we have four kids, and our two youngest both wanted hamsters, so we. Um, bought the cages, got everything well in advance, and then bought the hamsters like two or three days before Christmas and kind of hid them in our bedroom, which is, is not as easy as you might think. And on Christmas morning, we gave them to our kids and they were just elated. Um, and my daughter, who is like the most nurturing, loving, she just loves to have something that she could cuddle with and, you know, and, and, and mother, um, fell in love with her hamster right away. And by the end of Christmas Day, we noticed a small rash breaking out on her hands. And then by the end of the next day, um, her lip had swollen up really large um, from where she had touched the hamster and apparently had eaten something or touched her mouth. And she realized sitting there, you know, we said, Addie, we think you're having an allergic reaction. And tears just started to to run down her face. And um, so I wrote a post just reflecting on that, that. That's kind of life, um, that you have these highlights and you have these great moments and you should cherish them and enjoy them and celebrate them. But real life is that it's disappointing. And so uh, I think a lesson we can learn and teach our kids at Christmas time is not just the wonder of Christ's birth, but to be reminded that this is still a very broken world and that Jesus was the baby who was born to be broken. And we only know hope in light of his empty grave in which his dead body was placed in. And so the story of, of Christmas is wonderful and joyful and it should be celebrated, but we can't neglect the fact that we still live in the the in-between period where we're waiting for all things to be made new. So this hamster provided a great opportunity for a bit of a, a, a theology lesson. Um, and I, I noted that you you posted this on, on Twitter at one point, seeking to rehome the hamster Yes. Um, was social media ultimately the way that the hamster found its new home? It was, and it was actually a parent of a Cedarville student who's coming in this weekend to to drop their son off. And interestingly enough, their son's name has the same name as our, our son. Of course, it's our daughter who has the allergy. Um, but they're coming to town, and just a neat part of the story, we got a message last night. They recently, their family dog died, and there's kind of been a a desire to have something, but they're not ready for another dog. And so they saw the post and they thought, you know, this would be just a great way to find a little bit of encouragement in light of their recent loss. So all the more reason for us to kind of um, find a silver lining to this kind of sad hamster story. So we um, we had hamsters when we were little kids. Uh, and so I remember that. And then when Matthew, who's now 16, and everybody who's listening knows has dogs and chickens and is quite the chicken farmer. Um, he wanted something, you know, to love. And and I saw on social media somebody here in uh, in my community who was trying to rehome two guinea pigs. 
And so I thought, well, that'd be perfect, right? I mean, how, how much different could a guinea pig be than a hamster? And yeah. I had hamsters when we were little. Like, that should be fine, right? And, you know, they were going to, it came with the cages and all the apparatus and da da da. So, oh, yeah, sure, we'll rehome those. And so I went to pick them up. And let me just tell you that guinea pigs come with, first of all, they're big and they come yeah. with a lot of apparatus and they stink. And, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And so uh, the guinea pig experiment or experience in our house was what I would say was not particularly positive. But then we had a friend who loves guinea pigs and ultimately rehomed the two guinea pigs that we rehomed. So, uh, yes, and they have lived to a ripe old age, which would not have wow. been true had they stayed with us. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. So there's tons of stuff um, on this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. I don't want people to miss the one on human values as a faith commitment. That is really a valuable piece as well. Um, Dan, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your collaboration in this ministry. Thanks, Carmen. You guys have a great day. You too. All right. You can read more on the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. All right, Scott on the text line, which, by the way, you can text me uh, during the show at 877-933-2484. Scott says, rehomed. I'm learning new words on this show. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't know how long the word rehomed has been around, but um, rehomed is what it's now called when you adopt a pet. Apparently, it's like there is adopt a pet, but rehoming a pet uh, is the lingo. So if you're out there, you know, I don't know, looking for a pet or looking to get rid of a pet, rehoming is the lingo you're looking for. Uh, more on the farm report. Let's see. Uh, yesterday was Millie's Millie, by the way, who goes by Millie the Molinator because she likes to dig up moles. Also, uh, Madam Barks a lot. Um, yeah, she's also Madam Chews a lot. So there you go. Um, she loves the snow. I also discovered she's not really white. Like, up against the snow yesterday, you could tell, you know what? This dog is, is she's like, there's a little bit of a yellowness to her. She's not really white. Um, so that was interesting to learn about her. Uh, let's see. We are breaking in the new wood box that Jim built me for Christmas because it's cold where I live. And we're figuring out how to keep the chickens water um you know, from it's just frozen, completely frozen over. So there you go. That's the Friday Farm Report from here at my house, from my house and my heart to yours. This is Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.